This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Do you drive a vehicle? Then you'll find AutoCorrect helpful, especially on Coach Charlie's Tip of the Week. Listen to our podcast with me, Coach Charlie Melton, on any podcasting platform or on the MPB Public Media app. Good morning. This is Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And this is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. This is the program where we answer your questions that you call in with about any type of healthcare issue that you might have a question about. And that could be anything from a new symptom. It could be something that you don't understand about a medication that was prescribed to you. Maybe there's some questions about different treatments that are available to you for whatever medical problem that you've been diagnosed with or a new diagnosis that you don't quite understand. We're here today to help you get those answers and more. You can reach us right now. Email us. We do try to respond to those emails when we can. Uh, as soon as we can, and then also share those on air if it's appropriate. And if you give us permission to do that, that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a fabulous, rather seasonably warm uh, midweek. Wow, it just uh, temperatures really turned around and it's uh, quite warm. I don't know about you, but it takes me a while to like uh, my brain to get reprogrammed about what I, is, a, is appropriate to wear for the day. So I'm still in that. I've chosen the most inappropriate things to wear when it's going to get up around 80 degrees, and I'm probably going to sweat the rest of the day. That's that's this type of day-to-day. But I hope that you are enjoying that and getting outside some more. We, if we have time, we may talk about some allergy-related things that are, are right around the corner, particularly with some of these uh, warmer weather uh, days and weeks ahead of us. But uh, it's also a time that uh, you can sort of reflect on things that you need to do in the spring. You know, we've had a fairly consistent push of some of the health-related things that are would be good to do uh, on the heels of a new year. And to me, um, you know, last part of, of February, first part of March, still early in the year, and it's always a good time to change small things. I was telling some of my patients yesterday in clinic, you know, just choose a couple of things. Even uh, And one of the harder things is if you've been active or if you had a uh, more successful uh, balanced diet uh, in the past and you feel like you were doing really, really good and then something happened. Maybe it was a loved one that you had to take care of. Maybe it was a busy schedule or a job change or something. Um, birth in the family, whatever the reason, you may feel like, and this is, I see this so many times, it's so common in my patients where they feel like, you know, I'm never going to get back there. And I remember how it felt and what I was able to do. And it seems like I am so far away from that uh, because it may have been some weeks or months since they were there. Don't expect to just jump back into that. Your mind's going to think you can do that. Your mind's going to think you can run a marathon again. Your mind's going to think that you can go to the gym five to seven times a week and uh, do everything that you were doing or eat in a certain way. But ease into that. Most people are not successful at starting or restarting um, either an exercise or uh, a difference in eating patterns 
um, unless it's manageable. And the best way to do that is to sort of creep up over time. Sort of reminds me of that Mark Twain story. I think it was Mark Twain of the frog in the pot. You know, there's, if you want to boil a frog in a pot, sorry for all you frog lovers out there. Uh, the best way to do it is you slowly turn the water up and they will not notice it and they won't jump out of the pot. If you turn it up really quickly um, and sort of shock to the system, then they will jump out of that pot and you will lose your frog. So all the positive benefits in that pot that uh, go into getting you healthier. Don't try to just turn up the heat all at once. Ease into that. Pick some things that are low-hanging fruit, things that are easy to do. Choose one of those. Do it with somebody else if you can. Um, you know, peer peer support and uh, that support that you need from other people is very useful in doing that. I'm not a big gym fan, but gyms are a place where you see other people doing stuff and you see the same people if you go at the same time over and over again. So that's something that you can uh, can uh, sort of build in if that's available to you. But it doesn't have to be that way. It can be something very simple to start with. So just an encouragement out there to uh, take the time to really uh, increase uh, your health benefits in some small ways. And, you know, we're, we're certainly out of the COVID pandemic, uh, but there's a lot of holdovers I see. And a lot of the holdovers are sort of this mentality of just sort of holding up and not doing anything and uh, a little bit afraid to get out. Um, it is safe to do that. Um, and certainly for your own health, it is very healthy to do that. And we certainly want to, you know, if you look at the statistics, um, particularly the last couple of, of years from uh, the uh, life expectancy in this country, wow, man, it's it's gone down a good bit. And certainly you would think with all of our knowledge of what is healthy and our availability for healthcare, um, certainly we're going in the wrong direction. So a lot of things you can do for yourself to sort of uh, buck that, uh, that st- those statistics and um, actually live healthier as you live longer. I'm Dr. Jimmy this morning with you answering your questions that you might have about any kind of healthcare topic. If you'd like to email us, again, that email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. should mention, um, you know, a lot of people can't listen live and they may want to listen at another time. Some people tell me, hey, is that replayed? I say, yeah, it's replayed like 24-7 on a podcast. So go to your favorite podcasting app. It doesn't have to be any particular one. Just look for Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio and download that. And at your leisure, you can go and uh, listen to programs. I love finding a new podcast that really tweaks my interest about something. And particularly if I hadn't heard it, I love the fact that I can go back and listen to previous uh, programs on that. So I can just sort of scroll through that. One of the things I do on on longer drives when I have to drive uh, back and forth to places. So uh, last week, I actually was a patient. That's right. Doctors are patients sometimes. And yes, we are one of the worst patients. But um, I had to have some minor surgery last week. And, you know, some of my patients have asked me, so what's it like for a healthcare physician to be a patient? How is that different? What's your perspective on that? And I tend to look at a couple of things. I absolutely hate to throw out my doctor card 
uh, certainly don't march into clinic with a white coat on and say, hey, I'm a physician and I'm the patient today um, because I just want to be treated like everybody else. And it's very interesting to see some of the things and listen to some of the other patients um, and um, and it made me think about some things that we've talked about on this program that are very important that, um, you know, any patient in a new situation, particularly if it's surgery, even if it's minor surgery like I had, it puts you in a position where you don't know what to expect. And it really is incumbent upon whoever is doing that surgery and all the other support people to make sure that you know everything and have the opportunity to ask questions about what to expect. When we don't know what to expect and we're sort of shuffled down a hallway or we're shuffled into a building uh, and we're told we gotta we have to show up at a certain time or date, sometimes that creates a lot of fear and that fear can increase our pain thresholds or decrease your th- pain threshold, meaning it's a whole lot easier when you're afraid for you to feel pain. Well, that is very, uh, you know, that's that's very important around a surgery or a procedure. Uh, and certainly the apprehension can make your blood pressure and pulse rate go up and put increased stress on your body. So if you're not in a situation where that's happening, make sure you ask those questions. Make sure you reach out to those that are there. A lot of times it's just about asking that question. And sometimes you may feel like you are the only person that uh, that uh, has that question about what to expect. Guarantee you other people around you are probably thinking the same thing and wondering the same thing. So it is really important to do that. It's also really important. I know one of the complaints from all patients is, well, doc, you, you, I appreciate you asking me these questions about my medications or symptoms, but you're the fourth person who's asked me that in the last 30 minutes. And some things are very important and some things we don't want to miss. One of those areas are medications, and we do include over-the-counter medications and herbal supplements in that because they can interfere with a number of things. If we're talking about surgery, they can interfere with some of the surgical medications that they give either to put you to sleep or to give you during surgery, depending on what type of surgery that might be really important but might not work as well or uh, might cause some potential interactions with other medications that you're already taking. So it's very important, and that's one of the reasons why they ask you that those questions over and over again. The second item that is very important are allergies. And uh, I'm not talking necessarily about the, you know, if you say, do you have allergies in Mississippi? Um, we're like, yeah, we live in the South. We've got pollen. Like, come in uh, late March, early uh, April, and we'll guide you through the golden uh, uh, fog that descends on us from the trees. Um, or the, the ragweed, if you come in the fall, I guess it would be from ragweed. But um, allergies to medications are very important, or interactions with uh, or uh, side effects from medications that you've had in the past that you might receive during surgery. And then uh, making sure that there's any other medical conditions. This one's usually before a surgery or procedure. Most people will, will delve into that, but that's very important, too. And that is, you know, one of the reasons that they ask you those. Another reason is that they're trying to ascertain what kind of risk 
Are you going to be at an increased risk based on the medications you're taking? And how can we decrease that risk by either holding medications, giving you an alternative medication, or doing something different in those situations? So just a couple of things that I was reminded of as a patient and uh, had a great experience myself, but uh, just thinking of it from that uh, standpoint, boy, you know, wasn't really looking to have surgery. But it is a a great teacher in sort of what is it like to be that patient. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls and answering your questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have questions about. We're going to go to Roger from Florence. Good morning, Roger. Well, good morning. Thanks again for what you do and do a good job of it. And I hope I have not raised this question in the past. If it has, it's been a while and it might be reasonable to review it. But I'm a, a proud octogenarian and I've had all sorts of surgery, minor and major, from, you know, uh, hernia to craniotomy and et cetera. And uh, way back, I guess when I was 15, I had my first football injury and had surgery. And, and uh, I noticed just noticed but didn't make anything of it that it took a bunch of nurses a long time to try to wake me up Mm -hmm. and they remarked about it and joked about it and how boy he really is a sleeper and that sort of stuff and then every time thereafter and I'm talking I hadn't counted them up but I've had a lot of surgeries and been sedated and so every time that happens so for the last five or six surgeries I have, first of all, told the initial interviewing nurse that I want them to carefully, don't just titrate the stuff based on my weight. I am oversensitive, and I have trouble with this. Mm -hmm. And they say, oh, sure. And and then I uh, tell the uh, anesthesiologist when he or she appears, and they say, oh, sure, yeah, we will do the right thing. And then I beg the surgeon. And I beg all of them, and it always happens, mm. and I have suffered from it. Now, the last time, I don't know whether to blame, well, it wasn't the last time I get rid of my craniotomy, which is serious. I had a brain bleed from a concussion. Uh, that, that, my memory loss associated with that could be physiological result of the brain bleed. But I have had memory loss, in my layperson's opinion and observation, from this over-sedation. And I cannot, I cannot, I've not been successful in just pointing out that history and begging all of the people involved, from the first to the second to the third nurse to the anesthesiologist to the surgeon to the last moment of my consciousness on the table. And every time it happens. Hmm. And I'm lying in the recovery room, and they're still saying, is he awake yet? No, he's not awake yet. Let's try to get, and 12 hours maybe. So why do anesthesiologists, your friends, not pay attention to the information from the patient? They don't do it. They've never done it. And I've talked to a bunch of them, and they say, well, we've got, you know, the weight and the all these factors that they consider, and they just discuss it. But they never, you know what I think, and you can comment on this or not, I think that the anesthesiologists do their thing by the book, 
according to the charts, and then beg out. And uh, they may be sitting over in the corner watching the, some kind of a scope, but they, in my experience, in my sole experience, have ignored the begging of the patient with a lot of ex- personal experience and over-sedated me. Now, well, <laughs> I, that's my selfish point of view. But, I, I mean, I, I have a surgeon son. I, I know a little bit about sure, medical sure. all that, and I don't understand that. <clears throat> Yeah, there are a couple of things, and I'm not an anesthesiologist. I have, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, know a lot of anesthesiologists that uh, do a good job. I will say that historically over time, we have, anesthesiologists have much better medications to use that have less side effects. If you even look 20 years ago, huge improvements in that, huge improvements in the way that they determine it. You know, you mentioned sort of a cookbook approach to giving medications by weight. Um, I can remember a time when it wasn't even, you know, like that specific. So it was like a standard dose uh, that wasn't even weight-based unless you were in pediatrics. So that has improved at least a little bit. There's a couple of different things that go into that. So number one with a, you know, well, there's lots of different anesthetics that they have to choose from. And they do different things. Some of them will sedate you and cause uh, amnesia. Like you don't want to be, even if you're like, if the, if the type of procedure is one that you don't have to be all the way put to sleep on the on a ventilator, you don't necessarily want to remember all that um, because it you know it may be un, a little bit uncomfortable. And you also want pain relief with that, so you don't want to feel any pain. Pain has bad outcomes during surgery if it's if you're feeling that. And then the other thing is immobility. So generally speaking, surgeons don't like for the patient to be moving around. They don't like for it to have a moving target when they do surgery. So. Those three things are the basic things that go into that of choice of the agent. Now, you're right. I mean, I don't know about, I, I don't know if they're asking you that, but you know, that was my experience and certainly I know other patients experiences that their anesthesiologists do ask, have you had any problems with anything in the past? And they may even go back in the chart and look. But uh, and there's reasons for that, like some of them are related to, you know, some of the things we talked about um, at the top of the hour about, you know, the the differences in different uh, medical problems that you might have, you, the way your liver works over time. Once you get up, uh, you know, past about 65 or 70, there are some some changes that had to be made there. However, to get to the point where somebody is paralyzed, they're not going to move. And they're sedated enough to where they're not going to be conscious and they're not going to have any pain. There are thresholds that you have to reach for that. And it may just be in your case that they wouldn't be able to get to those thresholds um, if they reduce the dose too much. So as a medication is metabolized in your body, there's different ways that it's metabolized. Sometimes it's metabolized. The most, The biggest organ that does that is the liver, of course, but... Um, and it sort of break down, breaks down different medications. There's secondary byproducts of those medications that do different things. It can eliminate some of those medications itself. The kidneys can do that too. But um, it may be that to get to that point where you're safely not moving around and sedated, 
that it's just how long the medication uh, it may be metabolized just fine to get to that point, but how long it's in your system may be different. And then the other thing is, even if that medication level, if if you if you if they did a study on you and compared you to other patients that were coming out of anesthesia, they may draw the same levels. Uh, they may see the same levels of a of a particular medication in your system as you recover from that surgery and you wake up, and it may be exactly the same, but. Somebody else might be fully awake, and you might be uh, still sort of sleepy and hard to get awake. And it, uh, the other things that go on are things like, what's the anatomy of the upper airway? And is it more floppy in some individuals? So it's there are anatomic reasons, too, that sometimes can be a bit of a problem. And there are some things that they can give and do. They can do... You know, like in some patients who do have some either lung or upper airway problems, they can give positive pressure as a bridge coming off the ventilator. So it's like it's it's air basically with, you know, maybe a little bit of increased amount of oxygen in it that is under a little bit higher pressure that can keep your airway open. Sort of like what CPAP is for people who have obstructive sleep apnea. So with what little I know, that's that's the 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 background. Now, as far as the memory loss that you mentioned, that is true, particularly with older um, anesthetics. So some of the things that they used to use um, did cause over time, particularly if you have more and more surgeries, they do cause, um, you know, they can cause memory loss. Not always, but they can. Age in and of itself, unfortunately, is another risk factor for that. So even if you had the appropriate amounts of uh, anesthetic, and, and as you mentioned too, even like and particularly if you have something going on inside your your head, that puts you at more risk with the surgery. But uh, again, it's it's minimizing that risk. And here's what I would do. This is the the bottom line. If I were you, Roger. Before, hopefully, this is it. Hopefully, you won't have any more surgeries. If you do, I would have a face to face conversation with, and everybody else doesn't count except for the anesthesiologist who is going to perform that surgery, who's going to perform anesthesia. I would say, Can I have a consultation with them face to face first? And I'll give you an example of this. I had the only other surgery I had was 12 years ago. And at the time, I was in really good shape. I was running uh, a good bit, about 45 miles a week. And I qualified for the Boston Marathon by running. I just just run the Chicago Marathon. So my resting heart rate was about 42 beats per minute, which is pretty pretty low. Now, if somebody walked in off the street and had a, blood, a, a, a heart rate of 42 and had surgery... The anesthesiologist might even do some things to get their heart rate up. So I told my anesthesiologist at that time, hey, and when they said, is there anything else I should know? And I said, my resting heart rate is 42. So when you put me under and I get really relaxed, it might drop down into the 30s. I'm just letting you know. And, you know, you, they may not need to do anything at that point. So I would recommend if you have to have another surgery, unless it's an emergent surgery, of course, I would say, hey, I'd like a face-to-face. At least that way you can look the person in the face and say, I've had problems with this. Um, I'm not telling you what to do, but I'm telling you what happened previously so that you can make the adjustments if you need to, whether that's a different anesthetic agent, whether that's a different dose of it, 
whether it's a different modality of trying to wake you up um, afterwards. Um, so it's not, it's certainly not as simple as you think, and it's a moving target because as we get older, as we acquire different things, even as we come into each individual surgery, it's everybody's just a little bit different, and they're not cookie cutter. I think that's a good point that you made too. That it's it's not just you want to start there, but that's not the end point. It's very few times that you can just like apply everything to an individual person. That's a wonderful discussion. I really appreciate that very much. I've tried all that, but. I'll continue trying. I don't intend any more surgery. In fact, I've put off and and declined surgery because of this problem. Uh, I shouldn't do that, I understand. Well, if it's, you know, it's certainly elective surgeries, if you have the option of doing that. Knee surgery is a good example of that. You know, the orthopedic surgeons will tell you, you'll know when you need it. Um, No pun intended. Uh, you'll know when you need it, you know, but it's really up to the person to decide that, um, you know, based on their mobility and their, their pain level. Yeah, that's probably next for me. Okay. Thanks a lot, Dr. Jenny, and uh, you keep smiling. Shalom. <laughs> okay. Thank you, Roger. This is Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your calls and questions about any kind of health care issue that you might have. I'm going to go to Bill. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, sir. Thank you for taking my call. Sure. Th- sorry um, about that. Uh, I think my fingers were bumbling things there. Uh, oh, well, that's what happens. Uh, so anyway, uh, this is my question. Um, there was an article in the New York Times this morning, and I realized that even with reputable newspapers like the Times, they sometimes tend to have sensational headlines. But what the headline said was that uh, the mask, mandate during COVID did absolutely zero good. And I'm just curious if you agree with that or if you have an opinion about that or or what, because I know it certainly changes our lifestyle. Sure. Yeah, I would say I, you know, I didn't read the article, uh, number one. Um, I'd rather respond to the medical merits or or not of or lack of merits to mask in different situations and not speak as much to the mandate. I don't want to get into the politics of it. Sure. So um so when you yeah, if you look at particularly to COVID, let's just stick to COVID. <clears throat> so early on and the way that it was transmitted and the best data that we had, masks did help somewhat. They do help somewhat. Do they totally decrease your risk of getting it? No. And as the virus mutated over time, um, certainly masks were a little bit less effective, particularly the, you know, just the typical surgical mask. Now, the N95s, they're still, you know, um, they're still very helpful with decreasing the, the risk of it. We still wear those in the hospital when we treat COVID patients and in the outpatient situation. So I've seen patients in the outpatient um, you know, world. And if they're even suspected to have COVID, I'll go ahead and put on a N95. We're currently in our clinic, we're not wearing, we don't have a mandate of mask at this point. The other thing is when we had COVID so prevalent in the population, any way that we could, even if we're saying, and I'm just throwing out numbers, don't quote me on any of these numbers. Let's say that it decreased 30% transmission rate. Well, I'll take that. Um, It may be a little bit low, or even lower than that. Honestly, if I could get any kind of advantage over it where I can stay healthy enough that I can take care of people and I'm not going to spread it around. So ineffective, I've found that to be a little bit 
harsh from the if that's what the article said again i didn't read it but and i've heard some people say that well they were totally ineffective the mass mass mandates didn't do anything they actually did and um one other thing they did good or bad is we had less flu than we predictably had we had less rsv particularly in in children now the following year, once we removed those mandates, RSV and flu, particularly in, in children, has been worse just because we probably lost about a year to a year and a half of exposure with that. Um, but that's to be pretty predictable. You sort of, again, have to sort of weigh those risks and benefits. But uh, you look, mask. Um, we would surgeons would not have worn masks in the OR. I certainly wanted my surgeon to wear a mask while he performed, uh, you know, uh, on me. It certainly will prevent a lot of things. Smaller viral particles, a lot harder to control with just a surgical mask, just the mask that you tie around you. One that has the elastic straps has a closed seal. N95, N99 mask, respirators, those are much more effective, obviously. And you, but you don't have to do those for everything. There are a lot you have to think about, like viral particle size. RSV is a good example. Um, it's a much larger particle size that it travels on. We didn't really know that much about COVID and how it tra- was transmitted earlier on. At first, they thought it was about the same as, say, the common cold or RSV. Now we're learning that it's it can be aerosolized and in the space a lot longer, so maybe surgical masks didn't work as well. But you sort of had to weigh that. Right now, not as much prevalence in the community. There's much more immunity, both from getting COVID and from immunizations, and both of those count. So, um, you know, that's going to decrease how bad people who get COVID, you know, uh, uh, how, how bad that they get some of the side effects of getting that. So that's my thoughts on masks. I think it's one way to try to decrease the spread of it, just like we would want to decrease the spread of anything else, um, both in the community and in special places. You know, in a, if you are walking into a hematology oncology clinic and you were about to get a bone marrow transplant, I would want everybody in that waiting room to have a mask on to try to decrease the risk to you as a patient so that you wouldn't get anything, not, not you know, COVID included. So I, I think you have to think about it that way. And unfortunately, this was politicized too much. And, um, you know, I really think the the topic of conversation really moved from the scientific to the political. And once we got there, it just became a mess. But, uh, you know, I'm perfectly honest with people. They're like, yeah, but things change. I'm like, yeah, that's science. And we didn't know a whole lot about COVID. We were making a lot of guesses based on the research that was going on. We know a whole lot more about it now. And so, yeah, things do change. I want it to change based on the based on the data. Sure. Well, a couple quick Uh follow ups. Does a mask protect others from you if you're sick better? in keeping you from getting sick? In in the instance of COVID, it's the biggest benefit is if you have COVID. So if you had symptoms and you want to give it to somebody else, let's say somebody's coming over to your house and they they have a weakened immune system for whatever reason. Maybe they're on an immunologic agent for an autoimmune disease. Maybe they're, you know, for whatever reason. They, They have being treated for cancer. And you have symptoms, even if you don't test positive, not a bad idea for you to wear a mask. It may be a good idea for them, too. But the biggest benefit is from you if you had COVID transmitting it to them. 
um, right. rather than the opposite way because of the particle size and the surgical mask. Right. You can go right around it. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate your comprehensive response. Oh, thank you, Bill. We appreciate you calling. Let's go to Jim in Madison. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. What's your question this morning? Well, I have actually, uh, I'm going to comment on what you just said. I thought that was an excellent answer. And, you know, folks don't, and they, I'm a retired physician, so I'm coming from this uh, angle, too, but when, when, People forget that this was a novel coronavirus. Yep. This was new. Uh, when it came out, uh, we couldn't turn to uh, literature and find like a study with 10,000 uh, participants, double-blinded. So we have learned things, and that's why people people get disturbed sometimes because they feel like, well, the doctors, are, they're changing all this. They said this, and now they're saying that. It's because we are learning, and hopefully we're learning it through the filter of of science. But anyway, I thought your answer was great. Thank you, Jim. And I'll just get off and let you talk about it. Sure. Um, I'm of a certain age, so I was retired that I have falls a lot. And um, a few months ago, I was about to fall, and my wife went to catch me, and ironically, she fell and hit her head on the concrete floor. And she did okay for a few days, but then she had a... um, She's had what's been diagnosed since as post-concussion syndrome. Uh, I did take her to her physician. She had a CT that looked normal. But she's had headaches. She's had what she calls foggy brain, um, where she has trouble thinking. She doesn't like loud noises or loud places or loud movies. And uh, she's never had these symptoms before. But what's peculiar is she'll go days feeling pretty well and active and gets out about the house and does chores, then she'll have a day or two where all these symptoms predominate. But, you know, I've read about it, uh, the Inquisition. I, you know, went what I thought was good literature, but and I haven't really found anything. Um, we can't get a, a, an appointment with a neurologist anywhere in town. I think it's two, three months away before we could get an appointment, and I'd like you to comment on that, too. But do you know anything uh, else as far as post-concussion syndrome that we should be doing or could do? Yeah, and unfortunately, I've had some patients with this younger, older, all different ages that, um, you know, had this post, uh, you know, with a fall um, and or an, an injury to the head. So as, as you probably know, you know, the damage that's done to the brain because it's it's the and you know this, I know, but this for everybody else out there, the brain's one of them. It's it's a really highly active, metabolically active organ. And it does so much, and it has really um, increased metabolic needs. It requires a lot of oxygen, a lot of nutrients, including glucose. If it has any kind of damage, and it doesn't have to be in, uh, I think a lot of people are like, well, it didn't seem like this was a big injury. It doesn't really have to, and the mechanism of that injury can sometimes dictate how bad that damage is, too. Um, so, uh, you really have to sort of wait and see. And if somebody has other things that are reducing the amount of, of blood flow to the brain, if they already have atherosclerosis in particular, or they have other neuro, uh, disorders that can interfere with how fast the brain recovers. The biggest thing that I've looked at is sort of a slow progression back to that. So in the same way, if you sprain your ankle, You'd start off with 
as little activity as possible on that ankle, total rest. You can't like put your brain on hold over to the side, obviously, but you can limit the amount of input that it gets, which is why one of the hardest groups that we do this with is, is athletes, young athletes. And they want to, you know, they want to go home and they want to play video games or watch TV or look at their phone. Well, that's a lot of input to the brain. And um, as much as you can rest it, we know that resting it and sort of having a gradual return that is symptom free. So if you, um, you know, gradually go back to to a school or the activities that you normally would now for adults, of course, uh, particularly older adults, it's going to look a lot different. But same kind of thing, like you would want to limit the amount of TV, you want to limit the amount of screen time that you have. You would want to, in some instances, right after the fact, limit the amount of light input that you have and then gradually add back things as long as you're symptom free. It, it is, you know, with the patients I've had um, and I haven't treated them to myself. It's been a neurologist that, that has treated them or in, with younger individuals like a concussion clinic. Um they, um, you know, with those individuals, sometimes they do get a little bit ahead of themselves and they'll have a regression and then you just have to back up. But it is a graded, um, graded increase in activity over time, physical activity, too, but it also is mental activity. I'd encourage you if you haven't checked it out just because and I don't know if they would be able to do this, but sports medicine is the other group that does have a post concussion type situation in clinic so you might try uh, you know try contacting some of the sports medicine groups just to see if they might see her for this um, and that might be a quicker way we don't have enough neurologists and certainly this is a specialized area of neurologists um, we could we could have a whole lot more for all the neurologic conditions but unfortunately that's one of the things in Mississippi that we need more physicians and subspecialty physicians are one of them Thank you. That was a great answer, and uh, I appreciate it. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Jim's comment, too, about, like, novel coronavirus made me think of something. I came into training right after HIV had really been discovered, and, you know, I, I entered medical school in 93, and uh, it had already, in the in the late 80s and, and mid-80s, you know, I can remember talking to some of the physicians who were practicing at that time and the ones that were still practicing, there were still a few when COVID came around, they were like, this reminds me of the same kind of fear, the same kind of uh, misinformation that sometimes is out there, the same type of situations where we're learning more as we treat it. And um, they really had a lot of allegories between those two if you look at where we are with HIV now, very treatable chronic disease, very preventable, um, really totally different situation than when we were in the mid to late 80s. That was a, a horrendous diagnosis to get at that time. Now it's something that you can live with uh, per, uh, you know, and prevent, uh, but live with um, for the rest of your life. So just, just a comment on that. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, answering your questions about any kind of Healthcare issue that you might have, the email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Gail on the road. Good morning, Gail. Good morning. Question uh, about general anesthesia. Uh, it, uh, it does put you into a coma-like state. Is that correct? Yeah, coma is... Uh, I, to, and again, I am not an anesthesiologist, but a coma is like an altered mental status. And 
I, you know, sedation and and paralytics and to be paralyzed, those are the other the two issues that, to me at least, make more sense than saying coma. But you're right; it is sort of like a coma-like state, and depending on what they're doing. I didn't get into like, you know, regional blocks and spinal blocks, but sometimes it may be appropriate to do those rather than putting somebody totally, you know, quote, to sleep. Um, but yeah, it's it's similar to that. So there is a deep sedation where sedation just means you're really sleepy and you're not interacting with the, the you know, your environment the way you normally would. Um, and then paralytics would be something that they would give that would make it uh, not possible for you to move. So would the brain waves be similar to those under general anesthesia and those in a coma? Um, it really depends. So um, not necessarily now it can be you can you know the brain waves are e- in uh, electroencephalogram eeg so that's an electrical tracing of the of the uh, of the the brain activity as it relates to electrical activity and it can be different in different times actually there's some parts of anesthesia that look sort of like sleep like what it looks like when you're asleep there's some parts when you're in a coma like you are have an altered mental status you're not responsive to um to external stimuli and you're not waking up um that look like um look like sleep but to be honest so the the EEG tells us some information but the best information is, are you waking up? Are you responding? When we gently pinch your, your skin on your hand, are you withdrawing from that? That would be, you know, if you're not doing that, that's pretty, bas- that, that's pretty uh, sedated and uh, non-responsive. Are you able to respond in certain ways? And it might differ depending on what, what part of the brain is, is affected. So if it's some of the deeper parts of the brain, it might be severe enough that you're not even able to maintain your your breathing rate um, or even your blood pressure because the, the brain stem does some of those things. Or it might be a different part of the brain that is responsible for higher cognitive functions like complex um, math or keeping up with what you ate for breakfast, you know, those, those types of things. So it just sort of depends. Um, but yeah, it is a, and then obviously anesthesia is a much, much more controlled way to do that and to only get the sedation and paralysis that you need for that procedure. And then of course, to wake you up after that. And that's, very important. And again, it's incredibly rare that we have um, some of the complications that we had uh, 20, 30 years ago from some anesthetics and um, just just don't have that kind of, of um, interaction like we used to. Well, I know like when you have general anesthesia and you wake up, you don't remember anything that, right. Ha- right. you know, went on. But, and those that have been in a coma... Some say they don't remember anything. Others say that, you know, they saw the light. You know, yeah. so where would that all fall into? Yeah, it's it's just the the 
the areas of, of the brain that are active during that time. And obviously with surgery, you don't want that. So they sort of cut everything off. Whereas with a coma, it really depends on the damage that's there. So that's, that's sort of a, a general summary of that. Again, not a neurologist, not an anesthesiologist, but that's sort of a general way to describe it. Well, we want to thank everybody for calling today. That's all the time that we have. Southern Remedy is a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio and is funded in part by a grant from the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, professor of pediatrics and internal medicine at UMMC. You can tune in to MPB Think Radio every weekday morning at 11 for the full Southern Remedy lineup. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.